Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 338. Today's big Bible question is, are only a few people going to be saved? Well, happy Lord's Day, friends. I know I do sound like a broken record on Sundays, but I do want to invite you to join our live broadcast from our church page on Facebook at VBC Salinas. Just go to Facebook.com or Facebook app and search for VBC. It's Victor Bravo Charlie. Uh, VBC, Valley Baptist Church, Salinas. We will be continuing our series on the parables of Jesus and this week learning about God's wisdom in pruning his people from the parable of the true vine. We kick off at 11 a.m. and I hope you can join us. And if you do, leave a comment and uh, we'll give you a shout out. Two more readings in First Chronicles today, chapters 26 and 27, plus Micah 4, Luke 13, and Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, shout out to new listeners from London, England, and from Ontario, Canada, and uh, another new listener from Twin Falls, Idaho, as well as a couple of faithful listeners from Belgium and Denmark, who uh, pretty much download every day. Um, much love to you guys. Thank you for listening over there in Brussels and in the name of the place in Denmark that I can't pronounce, I apologize. Maybe you could uh, shoot us an email and let us know how to do that. Our focus today is going to be in Luke chapter 13, but I need to say a quick word about Micah chapter 4. From time to time, I personally go through a phase of really getting into Messianic Jewish worship music. Now, if you aren't familiar with Messianic Jews, this is basically Jewish people who are Christian followers of Jesus. And Messianic Jewish worship is quite strikingly different in tone from a lot of modern worship songs, and I really like it. Some of my favorite worship songs in this realm are from Micah chapter 4, because it's an awesome last days passage, and it talks about going up to the mountain of the Lord, and I've posted one on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I'll say it again, BibleReadingPodcast.com. And you can uh, come listen to The Mountain of the Lord from Chris Nesbitt. And I've just got a little YouTube link embedded in the post today for episode 338. So come check that out. And uh, we're going to tackle a big Bible question that is fairly rare for us in that it is a word-for-word question that is asked of Jesus in Luke 14, and thus we have his exact answer to our question today. But don't get your hopes up. Let's go read Luke 13, and we'll listen together to Jesus' answer to this question. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible At that time, some people came and reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, and he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir... 
Leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, but if not, you can cut it down. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated, but the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Again, he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, Go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. Yet it is necessary that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it's not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, here's the thing. (laughs) Jesus is asked, are only a few people going to be saved? And he doesn't exactly answer the question, does he? This is a tactic Jesus often used when he's asked questions like this because, honestly, he did not come to answer all of our questions, but to save us from our sins and to overcome the works of the devil and so that we might have abundant life and a couple other reasons listed in the Bible. And that said, I do believe we can find some scripture clues to help us, oh, maybe narrow down an answer to the question. For one, we get a partial clue from Matthew twenty-two fourteen, which says, Jesus says, many are invited, 
but few are chosen. But again, that doesn't fully answer our question. Maybe and probably Matthew 7, 13, and 14 might give us the clearest answer, although it's still not definitive, when Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. So this is a sobering passage, and it seems at first to spell it out pretty plainly. Few find the narrow gate that leads to life, even though many are invited. But again, what does that mean exactly? Well, William Buckestein of the Gospel Coalition helps us understand a little bit about Matthew twenty-two fourteen, saying, This comment is part of his parable of a wedding feast. Since many invitees refuse to attend, the master turns to the highways to find guests who will come. Jesus is speaking to those builders who had rejected Jesus. The parable illustrates what Paul later observes. Not all have faith in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2. Those invited are more numerous than those who actually attend this wedding banquet. Now, it's bad exegesis, says Buckestein, to read the last phrase of Jesus' parable, many are called but few are chosen, as a technical theological commentary using Pauline vocabulary of calling an election. John Calvin cautioned, for instance, that Jesus' words here ought not prompt us to enter into the question about the eternal election of God, because perhaps Jesus is limiting his comments to just the scope of this particular parable, although I would say the parable does seem to be about uh, the, the world in general. The wedding banquet is about all who are invited, in my understanding, to salvation in Christ. But it doesn't fully answer our question, does it? Will only a few be saved? Well, I don't think it's only going to be a few. For instance, we read in Matthew 20, 28 that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So we probably shouldn't think that there are only a small handful of people running around the earth. Something Spurgeon strongly cautioned his church about over a hundred years ago when he said, I do abhor from my heart that continual whining of some men about their own little church as the remnant or the few that will be saved. They're always dwelling upon the narrow gates and narrow ways and upon what they conceive to be a truth that but few shall enter heaven. I believe there will be more in heaven than in hell, says Spurgeon, because Christ in everything is to have the preeminence, Colossians 1.18, and I cannot conceive how he could have had the preeminence if there are to be more in the dominion of Satan than in paradise. Moreover, it is said that there is to be a multitude that no man can number in heaven. I have never read that there is to be a multitude that no man can number in hell. Hmm, that's a good point. I don't know, look... Usually when I disagree with Spurgeon, I'm probably wrong. I don't know if I agree with the first part of his argument um, about the preeminence of Christ, but it is most certainly true that we're told in several places in Revelation that there is a multitude in heaven that's uncountable. And so that tells us we're not just talking about a few hundred people or 144,000, right? Because, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses sort of think that and utterly wrong. They're misinterpreting scripture there. But the thing is, Jesus does say the way is narrow and few find it. But he also says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So it's not up to the lost people to find the Savior, but the Savior finds them. Now, 
Beckestein concludes his article on this question. He says, The question, are there few who are saved, asked in Luke 13.23, presents Jesus an ideal opportunity to say something like, yes, sadly, only a few, but he purposefully didn't answer. Such passages prove, at, at least as Benjamin Warfield maintained, only that salvation is difficult and that it is our duty to address ourselves to obtaining it with diligence and earnest effort. We can never learn from them how many are saved. And if scripture doesn't allow us to say that the elect are few, it doesn't help to appeal to experience. In the days of the apostles, a tiny fraction of earth's population were church members, but today nearly one third of the world's population, over two billion people, say that they adhere to the Christian faith. And what if the church is still in its infancy? What if the astounding growth of Christianity from the first to the 21st century is only the first small segment of a vastly longer timeline of church history? We simply lack the perspective to quantify how many people are in heaven, says Beckestein. Now, I will say, Beckstein is more optimistic on this question than I am. I realize that most people, at least last time I checked, in the United States profess to be Christians, but I do not believe that the majority of people in this country are actually genuinely saved followers of Jesus. But you know what? <laughs> I don't know that for sure. It's mere speculation, and our th I think Ultimately, our question is to a degree unanswerable because Jesus did not directly answer it. Yet, I conclude, there will be quite a bit more than just a few in heaven, depending on what you mean by few. I think there are going to be vast multitudes in heaven. The question I can't answer is, will there be more in heaven than in hell? That's a basically impossible question to answer because honestly, Jesus doesn't tell us. I don't see indications in the Bible otherwise, and I would be merely guessing. So why ask the question? Well, I want to point you to the dangers, and I want to point me to the dangers of following the broad road that Jesus warns about that leads to destruction, just as Pastor David Platt did in his sermon to the church at Brook Hills a few years ago. And David Platt says, warning number one from Jesus is the danger of spiritual deception. We gravitate the, towards that which is easily easy and popular. We gravitate towards it, the wide gate, the broad road. It's the easy road. It's inviting. It's spacious. It accommodates lots of people. It's attractive. It's inclusive to whoever wants to come. There are few rules, few regulations, few requirements involved on the broad, broad road. Now, don't miss this. The broad road is a religious road. The context here is that Jesus is speaking to a religious people. Don't be fooled. This is a religious road that doesn't require much of you. It involves grandiose promises at very little cost to you. A contemporary picture, the broad road, all that's required to go on this road is a one-time decision for Jesus, a one-time decision to pray to Jesus, and after that, you don't need to worry about his commands or anything like that. You don't need to worry about the glory of Jesus anymore. You've got a pass to get you to heaven, and your sin will be tolerated along the way. Now, lest you think that's an exaggeration, says Pastor David Platt, that's exactly the kind of gospel that has been sold to many thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people in our culture today, in our supposedly Christian culture in America. Jesus says many will go on that road, and then he says you enter it through the narrow gate. 
Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. What's really interesting is he uses two different words for narrow here in the original language of the New Testament. The first time you see it in verse 13, the word literally means to groan like you're under pressure, to be pressed on all sides, that kind of narrow gate. It's not easy to go through that kind of narrow gate. And the second time he uses it, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, the word that's used there is the verb form of the noun that is used all throughout the New Testament to talk about tribulation, most often persecution. So what Jesus is saying when he talks about the narrow gate and the narrow road that leads to life is he's saying that the way of Christ is hard to follow. We gravitate towards the broad way because it's easily easy and popular, but the way of Christ is hard to follow. Well, Hopefully that gives us something to think about. Let us pursue Jesus on the narrow way that leads to salvation and not the broad, easy way of religion. First Chronicles chapter 26, verse 1. The following were the divisions of the gatekeepers. From the Korahites, Meshelamiah, son of Kor, one of the sons of Asaph. Meshelamiah had sons, Zechariah the firstborn, Jediael the second, Zebediah the third, Jathniel the fourth, Elam the fifth, Jehoihanan the sixth, and Elihonai the seventh. Obed-Edom also had sons, Shemaiah the first, Jehatzabad the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nethanel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Ithsakar the seventh, and Pulathai the eighth, for God blessed him. Also to his son Shemaiah were born sons who ruled their ancestral families because they were strong, capable men. Shemaiah's sons, Othni, Raphael, Obed, Elzabad, his relatives Elihu and Semachiah were also capable men. All of these were among the sons of Obed-Edom with their sons and relatives. They were capable men with strength for the work. 62 from Obed-Edom. Meshelamiah also had sons and relatives who were capable men. 18. Hosha from the Merorites also had sons. Shimri the first, although he was not the firstborn, his father had appointed him as the first. Hilkiah the second, Tabaliah the third, and Zechariah the fourth. The sons and relatives of Hosha were 13 in all. These divisions of the gatekeepers under their leading men had duties for ministering in the Lord's temple just as their relatives did. They cast lots for each temple gate according to their ancestral families, young and old alike. The lot for the east gate fell to Shelemiah. They also cast lots for his son Zechariah, an insightful counselor, and his lot came out for the north gate. Obed-Edom's was the south gate, and his son's lot was for the storehouses. It was the west gate and the gate of Shalakcheth on the ascending highway for Shopim and Hosa. These were the guards stationed at every watch. There were guards stationed at every watch. There were six Levites each day on the east, four each day on the north, four each day on the south, and two pair at the storehouses. As for the court on the west, there were four at the highway and two at the court. Those were the divisions of the gatekeepers from the descendants of the Korahites and the Merorites. From the Levites, Ahijah was in charge of the treasuries of God's temple and the treasuries of what had been dedicated. From the sons of Ladon, who were the descendants of the Gershonites through Ladon and were the family heads belonging to Ladon the Gershonite. Jeheli, the sons of Jeheli, Zetham, and his brother Joel were in charge of the treasuries of the Lord's temple. From the Amramites, the Isharites, the Hebronites, and the Utsielites, 
Shebuel, a descendant of Moses' son Gershom, was the officer in charge of the treasuries. His relatives through Eleazar, his son Rehbiah, his son Josiah, his son Joram, his son Zikri, and his son Shelemith. This Shelemith and his relatives were in charge of all the treasuries of what had been dedicated by King David, by the family heads who were the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and by the army commanders. They dedicated part of the plunder from their battles for the repair of the Lord's temple, all that the seer Samuel, Saul, son of Kish, Abner, son of Ner, and Joab, son of Zariah, had dedicated, along with everything else that had been dedicated, were in the care of Shelemith and his relatives. From the Israelites, Chenaniah and his sons had duty outside the temple as officers and judges over Israel. From the Hebronites, Hashabiah and his relatives, 1,700 capable men, had assigned duties in Israel west of the Jordan for all the work of the Lord and for the service of the king. From the Hebronites, Jerajah was the head of the Hebronites, according to the family records of his ancestors. A search was made in the 40th year of David's reign, and strong, capable men were found among them at Chatzer in Gilead. There were among Jerajah's relatives 2,700 capable men who were family heads. King David appointed them over the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribes of Manasseh as overseers in every matter relating to God and the king. Chapter 27, verse 1. This is the list of the Israelites, the family heads, the commanders of thousands, and the commanders of hundreds, and their officers who served the king in every matter to do with the divisions that were on rotated military duty each month throughout the year. There were 24,000 in each division. Jashabim, son of Zabdiel, was in charge of the first division for the first month. 24,000 were in his division. He was a descendant of Perez and chief of all the army commanders for the first month. Dodai the Ahoite was in charge of the division for the second month, and Mikloth was the leader. 24,000 were in his division. The third army commander, as chief for the third month, was Benaiah, son of the priest Jehoiada. 24,000 were in his division. This Benaiah was a mighty man among the 30 and over the 30, and his son Amitzabad was in charge of his division. The fourth commander for the fourth month was Joab's brother Ashahel, and his son Zebediah was commander after him. 24,000 were in his division. The fifth for the fifth month was the commander Shamhuth the Israelite. 24,000 were in his division. The sixth for the sixth month was Ira, son of Ikesh the Tekoite. 24,000 were in his division. The seventh for the seventh month was Helaz the Pelonite from the descendants of Ephraim. 24,000 were in his division. The eighth for the eighth month was Sibachai the Hushathite. A Zerahite, 24,000 were in his division. The ninth for the ninth month was Abiezar the Anathothite, a Benjaminite, 24,000 were in his division. The tenth for the tenth month was Maharai the Netophathite, a Zerahite, 24,000 were in his division. The eleventh for the eleventh month was Benaiah the Parathonite from the descendants of Ephraim, 24,000 were in his division. The twelfth for the twelfth month was Heldai the Netophathite, of Othniel's family, 24,000 were in his division. The following were in charge of the tribes of Israel. From For the Reubenites, Eleazar, son of Zikri, was the chief official. For the Simeonites, Shephatiah, son of Makkah. For the Levites, Hashabiah, son of Kimuel. For Aaron, Zadok. For Judah, Elihu, one of David's brothers. For Issachar, Omri, son of Michael. For Zebulon, Ishmaiah, son of Obadiah. For Naphtali, Jeremoth, son of Azrael. For the Ephraimites, Hoshea, son of Azaziah. For half the tribe of Manasseh, Joel, son of Padiah. 
For half the tribe of Manasseh and Gilead, Iddo, son of Zechariah. For Benjamin, Jaziel, son of Abner. For Dan, Azarel, son of Joraham. These were the letter, leaders of the tribes of Israel. David didn't count the men aged 20 or under, for the Lord had said he would make Israel as numerous as the stars of the sky. Joab, son of Zariah, began to count them, but he didn't complete it. There was wrath against Israel because of this census, and the number was not entered in the historical record of King David. Asmaveth, son of Adiel, was in charge of the king's storehouses. Jonathan, son of Uzziah, was in charge of the storehouses in the country, in the city, in cities, in the villages, and in the fortresses. Ezri, son of Chelub, was in charge of those who worked in the fields tilling the soil. Shemai the Ramathite was in charge of the vineyards. Zabdi the Shifmite was in charge of the produce of the vineyards for the wine cell- cellars. Baal Hanan the Gedarite was in charge of the olive and sycamore trees in the Judean footholds hills. Joash was in charge of the stores of olive oil. Shitri the Sharonite was in charge of the herds that gazed in grazed in Sharon, while Shaphat, son of Adlai, was in charge of the herds and valleys. Obel, the Ishmaelite, was in charge of the camels. Jediah, the Maranathite, was in charge of the donkeys. Jaziz, the Hagrite, was in charge of the flocks. All these were officials in charge of King David's property. David's uncle Jonathan was a counselor. He was a man of understanding and a scribe. Jehiel, son of Hakmani, attended the king's sons. Ahithophel was the king's counselor. Hushai the archite was the king's friend. After Ahithophel came Jehoiada, son of Benaiah, then Abiathar. Joab was the commander of the king's army. Micah chapter 4 verse 1. In the last days the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream to it and many nations will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us about his ways, so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Though all the peoples walk in the name of their own gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered. Those I have injured, I will make the lame into a remnant. Those far removed into a strong nation, then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. From this time on and forever, And you, watchtower for the flock, fortified hill of daughter Zion, the former rule will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you as your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, let her be defiled and let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze, so you can crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder for the Lord, their wealth for the Lord of the whole earth. 
Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these He has given us a very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. And I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at at any time after my departure. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Well, friends, may this be a wonderful, joyful day of the Lord for you today. May you celebrate his resurrection, his salvation, and his kindness and goodness to you. And may his grace and his love fill your hearts. Good day and Godspeed.